Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Revelation chapter 5, if you want to go ahead and turn your Bibles there, and we'll get into our study. Now, um, we've, been, we've been going through the book of Revelation, and uh, last week, uh, you know, we went through the chapter 4, and the events in chapter 4, you know, really, the chapter and verse was added, I think it was the third century is when they added chapter and verse. Uh, chapters 4 and 5 really go together. Uh, we just ran out of time to do both chapters last week. Uh, but it's a continuation of the events of chapter 4. What was the events of chapter 4? Chapter 4 is when John is called up to heaven and he has a vision of heaven. Uh, if you ever want to know what heaven is like, maybe you're, you don't have to read that book or whatever, you know, find out what some people say, well, you know, what was in heaven and this was like, you can read it right here in the Bible in Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5. So chapter 4, we went through that. Uh, in chapter 5, uh, asks the ultimate question, and that is, who is worthy? And we'll be looking at that this morning. So what did John see in heaven in chapter 4? First of all, we talked about it last week, he saw a throne set in heaven and one who sat on the throne. You know, that's such an important thing, uh, especially if you're going through a difficulty or, you know, you're looking at the way things are in this life, in this world, and you're like, man, I'm just really frustrated with stuff. Remember, God's on the throne. He's there. He's in control. So he sees a throne set in heaven and one sat on the throne. And then he sees around the throne. He sees 24 elders uh, on the thrones and uh, well, he's 24 thrones and then 24 elders sitting on these thrones. And uh, we talked about that last week, who these are. We'll talk, touch more about it again this week. And then proceeding from the throne, he saw lightnings, thunderings, or actually heard uh, thunderings and voices. And he saw seven lamps of fire uh, burning before the throne. And we don't even have to guess what that is because we're told they are the seven spirits of God. And then before the throne, he sees a sea of glass like a crystal. And then in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and back. And the thing that I kind of brought out last week, speaking about these living creatures, they are so full of intelligence and they're so aware of their surroundings and all what they do is worship the Lord. And I think, you know, how often do we lose sight of the fact that Jesus is on the throne? If we just had that awareness that these living creatures are, I think we'd be worshiping all the time. So that's what John saw in chapter 4. The next thing that John sees in chapter 5, and we'll pick it up here in verse 1. It says, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to look, excuse me, was able to open the scroll or to look at it. If you had a King James Bible, it would say a book. There was a book. He saw a book in the right hand of him who sat on the throne. I think the New King James, which is what I'm reading from, is a more accurate translation. Um, it's, uh, it's a scroll. It's a biblios, a scroll, excuse me. It's not a codex. A codex was an ancient manuscript that was in text form, kind of like the books that you hold right now, your Bibles right now. But this was a roll, or more accurately, a scroll. And no, I did not say a skull. A skull <laughs> is a Viking word, which means to surrender in the heat of battle. But anyways, 
I'm sorry for you Viking fans. <laughs> I'm not a Viking fan, so I, I can say those things. <laughs> I'll probably hear about it later. Anyways, so um, a scroll. So here's a picture of a scroll. I think this might have been, well, I don't know if that's one of the Dead Sea Scrolls, but it's a scroll written on papyrus, um, and it's read horizontally, not vertically. Um, the rolls of the scroll were on the left and the right side. You kind of see that in the image there. And they had narrow columns about three inches wide. Uh, the scroll was held in the left hand and unrolled with the right. And as the reading went on, you know, they would start, they would basically scroll as they're reading. Um, and uh, the book of Revelation on a scroll written like that would probably be about a 15 foot long scroll. So this scroll that John sees, it's a unique scroll because this scroll is written on both sides, on the inside and on the back. And there's a name for scrolls written that way. It's called an opistography. I don't know if I pronounced it right, but that's what it's spelled or that's what it is. Um, so we have a, an example of a scroll like that in the Bible. In Ezekiel chapter 2, um, Ezekiel has a, a vision of the Lord, uh, of the throne of God also, in Ezekiel's chapter 1 through 3. And in chapter 2, verses 9 through 10, Ezekiel says this, Now when I looked, there was a hand stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was written in it. Then he spread it before me, and there was writing on the inside and on the outside, and written on it were lamentations and mourning and woe. So what makes it significant to be written on both sides? I don't know other than maybe there was not enough room, and so there's more stuff written on the backside. I don't, I'm not sure. But this scroll that, that John sees, not only is it written in, it's kind of unique, it's written on both the inside and the outside, but it's also sealed with seven seals. Now, when a scroll was finished in Old Testament times, in Bible days, um, they would fasten strings around it, and then they would, where the knot of the string was, they would seal it with wax, and they'd use an impression of some sort. Um, I have an example I pulled off the Internet there, uh, a typical uh, papyrus document where scroll up, you can see the strings strapped around it, and then the wax seal impressed on it. The wax seal that John sees has got seven uh, it would be seven strings with seven knots and seven wax seals. Um, but the biggest question I think that we have is, what's on this scroll? What's written on it? And uh, we're not really told. So what do we know about this scroll? Well, first of all, we know it's very important. Why do we know that? Because it's in the right hand of God the Father. He who sits on the throne is holding this scroll. So it's a very important document. Not only that, it's meant to be open and read. It's not meant to just sit there and look at this scroll. It's meant to be opened and read. And someone, only someone worthy, can loose the seals and open it. And at this point in, in uh, verse 3, no one is found worthy to open it. That's what we do know. What we don't know, obviously, is what is actually written on it. And, you know, we can, we can guess, and I, I'm going to tell you what I think is written on it. Um, but if we were meant to know, the Bible would have told us plainly what it is. So I don't think it's necessarily as important to know exactly what's written on it as the fact that it's sealed with seven seals. And we'll get to that as we go through chapter 6 through 19. So we don't know what's written on it. But here's what scholars think. And there's a lot of opinions. I'm only going to focus on two of them who are, in my opinion... Uh, the best. But again, I can't be dogmatic about it. 
So I'm just going to tell you what I think it is. Well, the first opinion about what's on this scroll is that it's God's will for the consummation of history. Uh, In Roman law, there was a requirement that if you were to write a will, it'd be on one of these scrolls like the one that we saw earlier, and it would be sealed with seven seals. So the Romans sealed documents with seven seals. In fact, Augustus and Vespasian, those are both Roman leaders, they left wills with exactly that, with seven seals on them. Well, that's one opinion about what's on this document. An argument against that being the case is that, you know, the book of Revelation has all kinds of Hebrew uh, symbology and, and imagery in it, not Roman imagery. Roman imagery. Uh, not only that, but Hebrews 9.16 says, for where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. And I got news for you, God's not dead. So um, I'm not saying that it couldn't be a will or God's will, but I think personally... A better interpretation is that it's a title deed to the earth. And that's not without its criticisms either. But I think this is, in my opinion, this is the best answer to what's on this document. You know, property today is purchased using a a process called fee simple. And uh, those of you that know real estate or you understand that, you probably can explain it better than me. I had to look it up. But fee simple, in English law, a fee simple is a way that real estate may be owned in common law countries and is the highest possible ownership interest that can be held in real property. So you buy something with fee simple, it's yours. You know, you've got the property. In the Old Testament, in Israel, God owned the land and he allotted it to the 12 tribes of Israel. So the property that was allotted to each tribe, God never intended it to go out of the tribe. It was meant to stay within each of the tribes. And so property in Old Testament Israel was not purchased in fee simple. Property was purchased for the use of the land only. It's kind of like the modern day what we would call a lease. It would just be temporary. Eventually it would revert back to that tribal, uh, that tribe. Now, If you had purchased the use of some property, maybe you bought a field and you were going to do some farming or stuff, and you ran into financial hardships, you couldn't make ends meet, you could sell that property. Uh, But it was always available to be redeemed or purchased by a kinsman redeemer known as a Goel. Uh, The book of Ruth has got a beautiful picture where uh, Boaz, if you recall the story of Boaz in, in the book of Ruth, he was a kinsman redeemer to Naomi. He was able to purchase, uh, well, we'll go into that when we get to Ruth, but we're not going to get to that today. But basically, the, the whole purpose behind the, the uh, kinsman redeemer was how God ensured that property stayed within the tribe that it had been allotted to. Uh, if you want to study this on your own, Leviticus chapters 25, verses 23 through 27, speak of the right of redemption. And that's it's all explains it there. We have one example, there's probably more, but we have one example of the right of redemption in a sealed scroll in Jeremiah chapter 32, verses 6 through 15. And what's going on in that chapter of the book of Jeremiah, the Babylonians... They've besieged Jerusalem. God has prophesied over and over and over again that the, that the Israelites, the, the inhabitants of Judah, are going to go into captivity. The king, Zedekiah, doesn't like hearing that. and Most of the people don't like hearing the bad news that they're going to be going into captivity. So Jeremiah is put in prison under 
uh, the orders of King Zedekiah. And uh, Jeremiah has been prophesying that Judah is going to go into Babylonian captivity, but that it won't last forever. And God's will for the, the inhabitants of Judah was for them to just surrender to the Babylonians, surrender to God's will, and go into captivity. But they were resistant to that. And so the Lord tells Jeremiah that his cousin is going to come to him in prison and ask Jeremiah to purchase a field from him in the land of Benjamin because he's uh, Jeremiah's kinsman to this cousin of his. Jeremiah has the right of redemption. Now, if you were a real estate agent or if you were in the, you know, you're into investing, buying property and selling property, this would probably be the worst time to buy a piece of land, right? I mean, the Babylonians have got the land. I mean, they're, they're conquering it. And here you're buying a field that you're never going to be able to possess because you're going to go into captivity with, you know, as a result of this Babylonian invasion. So from a, from a real estate pers- perspective, it's, it's the best or excuse me, it's the worst time to buy. But God instructs Jeremiah to do this. Why? Because it's a testimony to the people there of Judah that one day they're going to return to Israel and once again buy and sell property. And so Jeremiah purchases this field. He signs the deed in the sight of witnesses and he seals the scroll and he gives the scroll to a guy by the name of Baruch and tells him to put it in a clay jar. Now Jeremiah himself He's never going to possess that property. But 70 years later, his descendants or his near kinsmen would be able to open that scroll and they'll be able to possess that land after they return from exile. Why do I bring all this up? Well, you see, God had given dominion over the earth to Adam. But Adam forfeited it when he sinned when he transgressed God's command in the garden. You know, God never intended for Satan to have dominion over the earth, but right now he does, right? As a result of man's sin, Satan has usurped the dominion over the earth. That's why Paul in 2 Corinthians 4.4 calls Satan the God of this age. Ephesians 2.2, Paul calls him the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. John in his letter, 1 John 5.19 says, We know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. So right now, that the, the dominion of creation, it's been forfeited and Satan right now has got dominion over the earth. And you know, in the Gospel of Luke, in chapters 4, uh, verses 5 through 8, It's when Jesus is going into the wilderness and he's tempted by the devil. In verse 5 it says, Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours." And Jesus answered and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Jesus never countered and said, you're, 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 That's a lie. You know, that's not true. He didn't argue that fact that, that Satan had the authority and the dominion of this world. Jesus told a parable in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, he says, Again, 
The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man, uh, which a man found and hid, and for joy, uh, for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. In that parable, the field is the earth. Jesus is the man who finds the treasure in the field and he sells all that he has to purchase that field. Well, what's the treasure in the field and the earth? The treasure is the bride of Christ. It's the church. It's you and I who he's sold all. He's purchased us. Jesus purchased the world when he was crucified 2,000 years ago, but he has not yet taken possession of it. In fact, that's why Hebrews 2.8 says, but we do not yet see all things put under him. All things have been subjected to him, but we don't see that yet. Why? Because he hasn't taken possession of it. Now, one of the arguments against this scroll being a title deed to the earth is that this deed, is, it's in God's hands. It's like, wouldn't Satan have the deed in his hand? And not, not, why, why would God have it? Well, the earth is permanently God's possession, Right? Psalm 24, verse 1, The earth is the Lord's in all its fullness, the world and all those who dwell therein. And Satan is still limited by God's sovereignty. We see that in the scriptures. In the book of Job, remember Satan wanted to, you know, God's like, look at my servant Job. There's no one like him and stuff. And God says, or Satan said to him, well, of course, you're protecting him. You've blessed him. You've given him all that he wants course he's going to love you and jesus says well or god says okay he says uh behold all that he has is in your power only do not lay a hand on his person see he was limited in what he could do that's a comfort to me by the way that the enemy is limited to what they can do uh, to us another example is peter before jesus was crucified jesus said to peter Peter, Satan has asked permission to sift you as wheat. He's asked permission, but I've prayed for you. Again, that's another comfort. Jesus is praying for us. In Romans 8, Paul writes that all creation is subject to corruption and futility. Why? Because there is a usurper in possession of it, and that's Satan. So in verse 2 here of Revelation chapter 5, John says, then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. If you were to read that in the King James Version, it says, and no man in heaven or on earth nor either under the earth was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. The angel's looking for a man who's worthy. Why? Because creation was forfeited by a man and it only can be redeemed by a man, by a kinsman redeemer. By the way, at this point, obviously by the angel looking around, there's, there are men in heaven. Why am I saying that? Because we discussed last week, at this point, chapters 4 and 5, the church has been raptured, I believe, prior to the events of chapter 6 through 19, which is the great tribulation of the loosening of the seals on this scroll. And so this angel says, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? He doesn't say who's willing. There's been a lot of people throughout history, a lot of man, men throughout history that have been willing to have dominion over the earth. 
to be, you know, but there's, but they're not, they're not worthy. Nebuchadnezzar, he was willing to have complete dominion over the earth. Alexander the Great was willing to have complete dominion over the earth. You can go down through history. Napoleon, Hitler, shoot, even Hillary Clinton would like to have dominion over the whole earth. But the question is not who is willing. The question is who is worthy. And so verse 4, there's, you know, there's a silence because no one's stepping forward. Verse 4, so I wept much. This is John speaking. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at that. That word wept much. It doesn't mean that he was like, you know, crying softly or that a tear was running down his cheek. It means that he was wailing loudly, greatly. He's convulsing, just, just completely losing it basically. Just praying. Why? Think about this. In heaven, what's your interpretation? What's your, what's your picture of heaven? Not your interpretation. What's your picture in heaven? When I think of heaven, I think of everything is right in heaven. All the wrongs are right. There's no corruption. There's no more sorrow. There's no more sadness. There's no sin. Those of you that are here for Mayo Clinic, man, there's no sickness in heaven. All, everything in heaven is right. There's no injustice. There's no bondage. But right now, we look around in creation, and creation is subject to all of that because of sin, because of the curse of sin. And so when you get to heaven, you would expect everything's going to be made right. And this strong angel is searching in heaven, uh, on earth, under the earth, all over, and he can't find any man worthy to loosen those scrolls to loosen the scrolls so that, so that creation could be set free, that the Lord can take possession of it. And so it sends John into convulsive weeping. I mean, you mean creation is never going to be set free from corruption? You imagine getting to heaven, it's like, well, I guess that's, I'm sorry, I, we, we thought it was all going to be straightened out, but it's not, you know? I mean, that would be terrible. Verse 5, but one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Listen, these are all very, very Jewish terms for the Messiah. The lion of the tribe of Judah, where does that come from? That comes from Genesis, originally from Genesis 49.9, when Jacob, he's on his deathbed, Israel, he's blessing his 12 children, and he, he, he prophesies over each one of the 12 children, and he describes Judah as a lion's whelp. That's where the lion of the tribe of Judah comes from. The root of David, where does that come from? Second Samuel 7 and also Isaiah 11.1, 1, and I'll read Isaiah 11.1. 1, it says, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. So these Jewish people, they fully understood that the Messiah was the lion of the tribe of Judah, and he was the root of David. But it wasn't just who the Messiah is that makes him worthy to loose these seals and to open this scroll. It's what he has done. That makes him worthy. He's prevailed. That word means he's conquered. What has he conquered? He's conquered sin and death and hell. And so you can imagine John's hearing this angel saying, hey, don't weep. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he's prevailed. He's conquered. And, and I can imagine John's like, wow, where is he? You know, I want to see him. 
Verse 6, And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven eyes, excuse me, seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He was expecting to see a lion. Jesus as the lion or the, the, the root of David, this majesty of a king. And instead he sees this lamb. And, and the Greek there, the lamb, it literally means a little lamb. One that was sacrificed, a sacrificial lamb. This speaks of Jesus' humility. Isaiah 53 verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep for its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. This lamb, again, very Jewish symbology or imagery that's being portrayed here in the book of Revelation. You know what I find really interesting? The word lamb itself, it doesn't occur at all in chapters 1 through 3, but it occurs 29 times in chapters 4 through 22. Whereas the church, the word, the name, the church, it occurs 19 times in chapters 1 through 3, and it doesn't, it doesn't uh, occur at all in chapters 4 through 21, and only one time at the end of chapter 22, which is kind of a, a summation of the letter, basically. Why is that the case? Well, I think it is because Chapters 4 through 22 describe the metatauta. We talked about that last week. The things that must take place after the church age. See, I believe firmly that the church is in heaven at this time during the events that are taking place here in chapters 4 and 5. So this lamb, it's a little lamb, it's a sacrificial lamb. It bears the marks of of having been sacrificed. The lamb looks as though it had been slain, and yet it's standing, which means it's alive. It's, he's living. And he has seven horns and seven eyes, we're told, that, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Again, lots of Old Testament symbology here, symbolism. The horns in the Old Testament was a symbol of power. The number seven in the Bible is the number of completeness, the number of perfection. So these seven horns on this lamb speaks of his complete power. He's a little lamb that was sacrificed, and yet he has ultimate and complete power. The seven eyes, we're told they're the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And this speaks about his complete knowledge and wisdom. We call that his omniscience. God is all-knowing. And his omnipresence. God is everywhere all at the same time. Verse 7. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. See that strong angel, he could find no man worthy to loose the seals and open the scroll until the lamb steps forward. Who's worthy? That was the question we asked in the very beginning. Jesus Christ our kinsman redeemer who has the right of redemption, he steps forward and takes the scroll out of the right hand of the Father. You know, after Jesus completed the work of our redemption on the cross at Calvary, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down 
at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus Christ, he's sitting on the right hand of the Father. Romans 8, 34. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. That's what we know that Jesus is doing right now. He's seated at the right hand of God and he's making intercession. He's praying for us right now. What a comfort that is to us. But here in chapter 5, he's no longer seated. He's no longer interceding. He's now standing to loose the seals of the wrath of God. He's no longer interceding for the saints because why? Because the church is now in heaven in chapters 4 and 5 with him. And at this point now, he receives the scroll, all heaven breaks loose. Verse 8. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So there's a few instruments that are going to be in heaven. I don't know if guitars are, but harps are going to be in heaven. You know, hallelujah. <laughs> you know, that's where you, my wife plays auto harp, so I'm, I'm not sure, but it'll probably auto harps, right? It'll be a lot of, you know, anyways, country western music up in heaven. I don't know. Um, that's where you get that imagery. You know, you see the little angels, you know, with their wings on the, on, on the clouds with their little harps. I think that's where this comes from, this verse. Chuck Missler you don't know who Chuck Missler is, a very intelligent person. He feels that this verse means that cats will be in heaven. Cats will be in heaven. And he says, where else would they get the strings for the harps? So I don't... <laughs> okay, anyways. <laughs> Sorry for you cat lovers. <laughs> See, we're an equal opportunity offender. <laughs> All right. So there's these harps in heaven. <laughs> And uh, by the way, cat gut is not made from, I, I, I looked this up, cat gut is actually, I think it's like horse and some other intestines, it's not actually from cats, but they call it cat gut, so your cats are safe. I don't think they'll be in heaven, by the way. <laughs> All right. Now I'm further alienating everybody. All right, so he sees these, uh, these uh, 24 elders, uh, each having a harp, and golden bowls full of incense. You know what, I, I, it just jumped out at me. This is kind of the way I think. I'm so glad that John didn't see styrofoam bowls with incense in them. You might go, that's kind of bizarre that you would say that. You know, when you have styrofoam, like say you're going to have a dinner party. You have you're, you're, Maybe your boss, you're inviting your boss over for dinner and his wife or whatever. You, you really want to impress someone or maybe you're, you're meeting your in-laws for the first time and you, you're, you cook this fancy meal and stuff. You wouldn't serve it in, on styrofoam, would you? No, you want to impress. It's important. This is a very important event. And so God doesn't place prayer in styrofoam bowls. They're in golden incense, or excuse me, golden bowls. So this just shows me how important prayer is to God, that he would put it in golden bowls. Now, these elders bringing these bowls, they're not praying for the saints, Okay. They're not, there's people, they're mankind, there's, you know, saints, they're, they're not up there praying for us right now. These elders, they're just presenting the prayers of the saints to the Lord. And it's this incense. Now, I, I remember back in, you know, 
my I had an older brother that uh, he was like seven years older than me, and he got into the black light posters and the little you know the burning incense and all the junk. Probably he was probably hiding something that he was smoking. But anyways, you know it, I remember going into his room and it was like all these you know it was always dark. I always had the black lights on and he always had the little incense burning all over the place. And so then I started doing this. I thought it was kind of cool, you know. Um, so. Back in those days, I just thought about that. I thought, you know, you couldn't even burn incense today in your house, could you? Because the smoke detector would go off. In fact, I don't even know what cigarette smokers do. They must pull the batteries out. But anyways, um, incense, you know, it doesn't burn by itself. You have to light it on fire. And then it starts smoking, and then you smell. And I think that's such a beautiful picture because, you know, sometimes, I'll be honest with you, sometimes I just rattle off a prayer there's no fire in it. There's no passion in my prayer. And, and I think that fire, you know, our prayers need the passion of the Holy Spirit in them to be effective. And I think we see a picture of that here, the burning incense. Our prayers need fire. Verse 9. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. Now in chapter 4, we talked about it at length and actually the teachings online if you want to listen to it. But chapter 4, we said that the 12, 24 elders are representatives of the church. They're not Israel, why? Because they wouldn't be saying we've been redeemed from all different, from every tribe, tongue, and nation. It would be only one tongue, only one nation, one people. But these are from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And they have to, if they are the church, they have to be representative of the church because there's certainly more than 24 tribes, tongues, peoples, and nations throughout history. And they can't be angels. And some people say, well, these are the angels. No, they can't be angels because no angels have been redeemed. Only man's been redeemed. And so these are representatives of the church, I believe, that are singing this new song. Now, in chapter 4, they sang a song too. But that was the song of creation. In fact, the four living creatures, they can sing that song as well as the 24 elders. In fact, it's interesting verse... In Job 38, verses 4 through 7, it talks about how all the sons of God shouted for joy at creation. The angels, man, they, they, they went into worship and singing as God was creating the earth. But only the church in chapter 5 can sing this new song because it's the song of redemption. It says, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Notice one thing. Notice that the redeemed saints in heaven, they have no problem singing about the blood of the Lamb. Just think for a moment. How many of the new popular worship songs that you know of today mention the shed blood of Jesus. Just think about it. How many of them mention the blood of Jesus? I think there's a trend. People are kind of getting away from 
I mean, it's, it's gross, right? Blood's gross. And we, want, we, we don't want to gross people out. We, we want to appeal. You know, we want it to make it nice so that people love Jesus. He's, you know, but here the saints in heaven, man, they're singing about the blood of Jesus. I like what J. Vernon McGee says. It says, They sing of his shed blood in heaven. Down here, many denominational churches are taking out of their hymn books all references to his blood. But in heaven, they will be put back in the hymn book. I guess that may be the reason the Lord isn't going to embarrass some of these folks by taking them into heaven, because then they'd have to sing about the blood there. I like that. So they're singing, You have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe, tongue, and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God. Again, only the church is a priesthood in heaven. And he says, and we shall, and they say, saying, we shall reign on the earth. And I believe that's the millennial reign of Jesus Christ on the earth. I don't, I, you know, I, I got to do this. I want to go to the back of the book because we're not going to make it to Revelation chapter 20 today. But I want to just give you a sneak peek to the end of the story. In Revelation 20, and I'll just read it to you. You don't have to turn there if you don't want. But in verse 1 through 6, it says this. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain is in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him, so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection over such... The second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. That's you and I speaking of. Now, one of the things that's interesting, Ezekiel. Ezekiel had a vision of the throne of God. We talked about that a little bit last week. It's in Ezekiel's chapters 1 through 3. And he sees cherubim. We'll find out in, in Ezekiel that they're cherubim. Uh, he sees much of the same things that John sees here in chapters 4 and 5, except there's one thing missing, which I think is interesting. Just like John, Ezekiel saw the throne of God. The throne of God was there. Just like John sees, Ezekiel saw the four living creatures there around the throne. But you know what he didn't see? He didn't see 24 thrones with 24 elders the elders are missing. Why? Because in the Old Testament, the church was a mystery. But again, now John sees him because I believe the church is in heaven with Jesus at this point. You know, I mentioned earlier that Jesus prays for us. He's, in fact, the Bible says he's interceding for us right now on our behalf. You know what's really cool about that is that God answers Jesus' prayers. Jesus prayed for us his disciples, and he prayed for us by extension in John 17. And guess what? His prayer is answered. In John chapter 17, he prayed that we might know him, 
that we might be with him and that we might behold his glory. And when you and I get to heaven, that's exactly what's going to happen. His prayer is going to be answered. We're going to know him. We're going to be with him. And we're going to behold his glory with all these other creatures. In fact, look at verse 11. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousands times ten thousand and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Who is worthy? The Lamb that was slain and yet lives. He alone is worthy. And as I was reflecting on that, I thought, why do we attach so much worth to anything or anyone else? And we do that in life, right? We attach worth to some things. We, we, some things are so valuable to us that we would sacrifice anything for it. But why do we do that when it's Jesus, he alone is worthy? Someone said this before, this is not a unique quote that I'm coming up with, but the only thing man made in heaven will be the scars Jesus bore for us when he was crucified. You know, throughout eternity, we will understand and appreciate his sacrifice for us more and more on a deeper level. I don't think we're ever going to get tired of seeing that or, or we're never going to get to a point where I finally understand it. It's just, it's going to amaze us throughout all eternity, the sacrifice that the lamb that Jesus paid for you and I. It'll never cease to amaze us and it'll never cease to cause us to worship him. And so John sees and hears thousands, ten thousands and ten thousands and thousands and thousands. How many is that? Well, in other words, there's got to be a finite number, yet to John, it was innumerable. There were too many to count. Now, I don't know about you if you don't like large crowds. You don't, you know, like you, I, I, like you'd never step foot in the Mall of America or something at Christmas time because it's like I hate large crowds. I'm, I'm one of them. I'm not real big on big crowds. But if you don't like big crowds now, guess what? <laughs> You're going to be in a big crowd there at that point. So, and they worship the Lamb with a loud voice. And some people are like turn down the worship music; it's too loud. I don't know if it is here, but you know, I've been in churches where it's just like bellering. You know, uh, if you don't like loud worship got news for you you might have to do a little adjusting the good news of course is we'll have new bodies we'll have new ears our bodies are going to be designed for eternal life so maybe at that point you know we won't be claustrophobic or we won't have you know my yeah it's hurting my ears or anything like that anyways verse 13 and every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the twenty-four elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. Do you remember those of you that have purchased a home? Do you remember when you purchased, maybe it was your first home, 
you purchased it, you, 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 you agreed on a price, you got everything, you signed all those papers, but you had to wait until the closing date to take possession of that house. Do you remember that feeling, that anxiousness? Man, for us, I remember like 60 days, like, oh, man, I can't wait to get into that. We're even, we're, we're even starting to, let's buy this for that house. You know, we're all anticipation of, of taking possession of that house. And that joy that you feel when you're sitting there in that escrow office, you're, you're, closing, you're closing the deal, and they hand you the keys, and they go, it's yours, man. Take possession of it. You know that joy that you feel when that takes place? Multiply that on an exponential on an exponential scale, and you're still not close enough to getting a grasp of the joy of this closing, of Jesus taking possession, the title deed of the earth. When Jesus Christ, our kinsman redeemer, is about to take possession of all creation. Think of the joy that's just Finally, you know, the Bible says all creation, you know, it's groaning right now. I'm groaning right now. I'm not right now, but, you know, I'm groaning. I can't wait to be in heaven to have a new body. I can't wait to be rid of this flesh, you know, because this flesh, man, even when, even, even when I feel the most spiritual and I'm worshiping the Lord, <laughs> I get distracted. My mind goes off here or that. I'm like, oh, what's going on there? You know, I... Even my worship at, the, at its most spiritual is still full of the flesh. And there's coming a time when uh, that flesh is going to be gone and I'm going to be just my new body. I'm going to be, you know, it just worshiping him in spirit and in truth perfectly. I, I'm so anxious for that. I, I, you know, here's the other thing, you know. Jesus alone is worthy. And I think that should be a relief to a lot of us. Because some of us try to live our lives, we try to become, we want to make ourselves worthy so that God will love us. And the news is, you're not worthy, okay? Just get over it. You're not worthy. Jesus alone is worthy. What a relief that is for us. And what a contrast between what is taking place here in heaven and what is about to take place on the earth in chapters 6 through 19, which we'll start looking at next week. Why don't you stand up? Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we thank you for this record that uh, we have of John's uh, being, being uh, taken up into heaven to see, uh, to see the throne, to see what's taking place, and to be able to, to convey that to us, Lord, to give us a hope about our future uh, of eternal life. Lord, I pray for every person here that... Uh, is sitting in this room today and those that might be listening online. Lord, I pray uh, if anybody listening here does not have a relationship with you, Lord Jesus, Lord, that today would be the day that they would recognize that you are the lamb that was slain, Lord, that you were slain for them, that you died on the cross to pay the price for their sins. And that, Lord, they'll never be worthy of heaven apart from your shed blood for them. And that, Lord, that they might repent of their sins believe that you died on the cross and rose again for their sins, and that, Lord, they would pray to receive you into their heart as Lord and Savior. So I pray for anybody in this room, Lord, that they would uh, not leave this place without a relationship with you, Lord God. For those of us that have a relationship with you, Lord, I, I thank you, and I just pray, Lord, that you would just encourage us, no matter what we're going through this week, no matter what's going on in our life, that we would remember that this place is not our home, and right now you are on the throne. And that, Lord, that that would give us comfort. And so I thank you for uh, our study this morning. 
And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Uh, worship team is up here. Yes. Okay. <laughs>